Greetings and salutations out there, everybody, all across the wide and wonderful internet. It is Michael Shibley back with another glorious edition of Modern Day Gladiators here on the Outlander Media Network. Thank you guys so much, as always, for tuning in. We've got another hugely packed show for you. Of course, no task too small for the ace of Tennessee sports podcasting. We've got, of course, college basketball, finally an end to hopefully the Colin Kaepernick saga in terms of lawsuits and everything with that with collusion. We've got NBA All-Star Weekend happened because it did. A golfer being a cheapskate, or at least that's what we think was happening there. New stuff in the WWE Hall of Fame. And of course, much, much more as we break it all down here on Modern Day Gladiators. And of course, we're here on the Outlander Media Network, where you can listen to us everywhere you get your fine podcasts, including outlandermedia.net, where you can check out all the other great podcasts that we've got, including Halfle, J&B's DLC, Phantasm, Deadbeat Radio, and more. We've got more shows coming as well, so be on the lookout for that. And of course, you can listen to all the stuff there. There's a nice media player. You can check out all the other great podcasts and listen to all of them there in just one spot. Of course, wherever you get your fine podcasts, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now Spotify. You can check us out there as well. And of course, wherever you listen, please like, subscribe, share, comment, give us those five-star reviews. You want to help us out? That's the best way you can do it, and we will love you forever if you give us those five-star reviews reviews. And of course, you can follow me on social media at Modern Day Gladiators on Instagram, Michael underscore Shibley on Twitter. And also you can check us out on Facebook on the Modern Day Gladiators podcast uh, Facebook page where we post, of course, news updates and live videos when there's something big that we need to talk about instantly and we can't wait for the week to end so we can talk here on the podcast. Like when Tennessee and Kentucky uh, played I had some instant reaction to that. So there was my instant reaction. We're going to go more in-depth right now as, of course, another week of great college basketball action happened, and it was not a good week for the number one, formerly number one ranked, I should say, Tennessee Volunteers, my beloved Vols, losing at Rupp Arena to, at the time, number five, Kentucky, 86-69. to The Kentucky Wildcats, and I've talked about this, they just outworked Tennessee, which was amazing because you've seen the work ethic that Tennessee had had all season long and also in previous seasons, and you didn't think anybody was going to just flex on Tennessee like that and Tennessee would back away like they did, but it seemed like Tennessee was walking into a bad situation. Yes, the 19 wins, it was wonderful. It's a school record. Never be forgotten with this team. But it seemed like they didn't really play a lot of tough opponents on that way. I think after they beat Gonzaga, the number one team in the country at the time, I don't think Tennessee had played a team that's going to be in the NCAA tournament except Florida and Alabama. They've beaten those teams. So there was something there. But everybody else that's been on Tennessee's schedule up to Kentucky was not really high caliber. And Tennessee had not been playing great in those games they've been winning comfortably there is no issue with that except the overtime uh win at Vanderbilt and then of course you had the game against Alabama which went down to the wire but other than that Tennessee hadn't really had a very tough opponent to get up for as much now this game 
again, was something we'll see. It's at Rupp. Tennessee, I think, in the history of that building being there and Kentucky playing basketball in it, I think Tennessee's only won five times there. So last year when they won at Rupp, that was a huge deal, and I would have loved for it to have happened again, but that crowd was amazing. I think it really also did uh, was a negative for Tennessee, the fact that LSU came in there and beat Kentucky on that controversial call. I think that hurt them as well because when you look at it, Kentucky was mad about that falling down a little bit in the SEC rankings. So you have to factor all those in. It was just looking for Tennessee to be beat. I was not surprised that they lost. We talked about that before on the podcast. I was surprised again on how big and bad Kentucky went against Tennessee, and Tennessee just backed down in a very physical matchup. You didn't see that. Now, again, you talk about Tennessee hadn't really played anybody since then, but you look at some of the other things. You look at Gonzaga, who's the new number two team in the country. Who have they played since they played Tennessee when you look at them? They play in that West Coast Conference, and that just sets them up a lot of times. They've made one Final Four, and Mark Few's got a great bunch there in Gonzaga. They could make another Final Four run, and that would not surprise me at all this season, but they don't really play high-quality opponents as much when it comes to later in the season when they get into conference play. So I think that hurts them, but nobody's been saying anything bad about Gonzaga. Of course, they have still kept winning. So Tennessee lost, which gave people a thing to come in and talk about. Now, of course, the student section at Kentucky was chanting overrated, which is something they don't get a chance to chant much because usually it's Kentucky who's the higher-ranked team coming in. So that was interesting. Of course, John Calipari put the kibosh on that first because he's friends with Rick Barnes and also because Tennessee and Kentucky play in uh, a Saturday from now. So not this Saturday, but next Saturday they play each other here in Thompson Bowling Arena. So you got to watch out for that. Now, some people were coming out and saying Tennessee was overrated, but I'm not going to put anything on that until we finish this Season. We got to finish the regular season here. Then we can come into determination on how, if Tennessee was overrated with this number one ranking. Because, yes, Tennessee has had some trouble with some of these maybe weaker opponents going into this and not looking great. And that, of course, that kind of showed and reared its ugly head here on Tuesday night when Tennessee hosted Vanderbilt. And again, Vanderbilt, I don't think, has won an SEC game all season. And Tennessee only beat them 58-46. That was the lowest scoring win for a Tennessee team under Rick Barnes. Tennessee did not look sharp in that game. But Tennessee, again, it was their third game in six days, which I think did put a toll on them. I don't think Tennessee got a day off after the Kentucky game because they were so beat up. Should they have beaten Vanderbilt by more? Yes, I, I do believe that. But they got the win. They didn't let Kentucky beat them twice, which I think is a very big thing to do and also Vanderbilt coming in with some motivation again they're always going to play Tennessee tough that in-state rivalry is stronger than a lot of people who aren't in the SEC don't see that so you have to pay attention to that even when Vanderbilt is not as good so that's something to pay attention to definitely a contrast to the 88-81 game that they had a few weeks ago when Tennessee ascended to the number one ranking and got pushed to the limit at Vanderbilt, uh, Grant Williams went 23 for 23 from the free throw line in that one. He only attempted one free throw in this game. He did have a double-double, which was great. He carried the team again against Vanderbilt. But it's something, again, you need to look at when it comes to Tennessee. What's going to be big is the rest of Tennessee's schedule. Because, again, it is backloaded with very good teams. We'll break that all down right now. Again, 
this Saturday, noon on ESPN, so it'll be 11 o'clock there in LSU, but that Pete Maravich Center will be rocking as LSU, again, looking to ascend to first place in the SEC. If they beat Tennessee, they're in first place because they beat Kentucky, so number 13 at LSU, and then at Ole Miss, who has won their last five SEC games in a row, and should be six because they're hosting Georgia uh, this weekend, so at Ole Miss, and then versus Kentucky, at Thompson Bowling Arena, and then hosting Mississippi State for the last uh, game at home for the seniors, and then it's going to be at Auburn, who's still a solid team, not as good maybe as they were last season, but still a very good team, and of course Bruce Pearl is always going to play his former team tough, especially there in Auburn. So again, I'm not going to come to any type of resolution about this season until, especially the LSU game, that's going to be one where you can get a lot more conclusions, but let's finish out the season And then we'll see how over or underrated Tennessee was all season long. One thing Tennessee does have to do is they got to stop P.J. Washington again there. He was just making that little baby hook all game long. They could not defend him. It runs into a lot of the height issues that Tennessee has. Yes, Kyle Alexander is there at 6'11", but he's not very big when he comes to that. He's tall, not as big, and he cannot get into foul trouble like he did against Kentucky. That did not help at all, and Tennessee cannot afford again to get run out of the gym again, especially at the start of the second half like they did. They had problems against Vanderbilt at the start of the second half as well, but Vanderbilt is not Kentucky, so Tennessee was able to benefit from that. They did play better defense, so again, let's draw some more conclusions as Tennessee finishes out this schedule. We do have a new top 10 in college basketball as Duke has ascended back to number one. Gonzaga, as I mentioned, number two. UVA at number three. Kentucky moves up to number four, and Tennessee falls behind Kentucky, rightfully so, at number five. Rounding out the top 10, Nevada, Michigan, North Carolina, Houston, and Michigan State. So again, a very good top 10. It's going to be, again, as always, an exciting exciting rest of the season as we head into March and the madness begins. Speaking of madness, Iowa has been living on the edge a lot this season. They've made two in a row buzzer beaters to beat Northwestern and to beat Rutgers in just some crazy endings, but they were not able to make it three in a row. A shout out to my mom's alma mater, Maryland. They beat Iowa 66-65. Bruno Fernando for Maryland got a putback with 7.8 seconds left, and Iowa missed again on their third straight attempt to win a game at the buzzer. What's really important about this is Maryland, I think for the first time, and it seems like since they joined the Big Ten, finally won a road game against a ranked Big Ten opponent. So that is good for Maryland, and will be good to see the Terps back in the NCAA tournament. And of course, the big matchup as all, as of course, this will come out right before the game, so make sure to listen to that. But we've got Duke, North Carolina, a eight miles and a shade of blue is all that separates Duke and UNC. They do not like each other. If you don't know that, I have no idea why you're listening to this podcast, but I love you anyway. It has been always a classic. Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett, of course, going up against UNC. It is to Duke's advantage. They are a nine-point favorite at home. But again, who knows what's going to happen with that. It's a great matchup. It's, I think, the 46th time both teams have been in the top 10. Uh, Duke is 23-22 and 22 in that. You talk about how even this series is. I think there's three points separating them in total points since the 70s. It's just an amazing matchup. It's always fun to watch. I'm going to have it on. It's going to be great to sit back and watch. I like it better, though, 
at Duke. For whatever reason, that Cameron Indoor Arena is just, it seems like a better atmosphere for this rivalry game. I like the Dean Dome, but it just seems very cavernous, which is sometimes what happens at Thompson Bowling Arena, where sometimes it's almost a too cavernous cavernous arena to host stuff when the noise isn't in there as much. But it's still a great matchup, no matter if it's in Chapel Hill or it's in Duke. I just like it better there on Coach K Court in Cameron Indoor with the Cameron Crazies going crazy. So that's going to wrap up talking about college basketball. But of course, the other big story of the week. They did it, of course, in typical Friday news dump fashion because they didn't think we'd pick it up, but uh, a settlement has been reached in the Colin Kaepernick, Aaron, Eric Reed, I'm sorry, uh, collusion grievance filed with the NFL. Uh, Colin Kaepernick and later joined by Eric Reed uh, claimed that the NFL teams and owners were in violation of the league's anti-collusion clause of the CBA. They were claiming, again, the NFL did not want Colin Kaepernick back in the NFL for the first time since January 1st, 2017, because of his stance, his political stances and kneeling during the national anthem in protest of uh, just racial inequality. It, that's what it's pretty much developed into uh, as, as time has worn on here. Eric Reed, of course, was the first other player to join him in kneeling next to him when they were both with the 49ers. Eric Reed, though, of course, has moved on and now has a deal with the Carolina Panthers. Just signed an extension is going to be there for the next three years. But you look at this, I'm just happy the whole thing is over because it again, we've talked about Colin Kaepernick a lot on this podcast. And again, I appreciate you guys' feedback. And if you have any opinions on this, I would love to hear them on the Facebook page or again on Twitter at Michael underscore Shibley. I would love to hear your opinions on this, but Colin Kaepernick, again, was released by the 49ers after the season, and he'd been trying to find work, or at least he had stated he's been trying to find employment with the NFL since then. Really what it comes down to is the arbitrator who would be hearing all this, Stephen Burbank, was going to conduct a hearing to resolve the issue early in the spring. Uh, both sides would have, and this is big, both sides would have to have discovery of evidence and airing of grievances. I think a big reason the NFL decided to settle was that they did not want discovery, not only for maybe something about this collusion coming out or that there was any other evidence that the NFL would have to release to the public that they did not want really seen or the public to scrutinize over. So, That was really big. I think the NFL, when it comes down to a lot of it, just did not want discovery, again, as I've mentioned, and just wanted so much of this over with. This had been just a a match point for them or a flashpoint where even the president of the United States, Donald Trump, has been throwing matches at it just to try and keep his base rallied about it and keep it in the mainstream. And you look at what happened with the NFL, and we talked about this on a previous podcast, where the ratings were up for the NFL during the regular season. The Super Bowl, not so much, and we talked about that because of just poor football, and I think people are tired of the Patriots, and the Rams were not as prevalent as a known franchise Uh, as some of the other teams in the Super Bowl. But anyway, the ratings were up, and I think a lot of that was, yes, the games were better, the action was better, but I think they also didn't talk about the protests during the season at all. And I think very few players were still taking a knee during the National Anthem. I think there's about three Miami Dolphins players 
and I think one of the players on the Tennessee Titans, and that was about it. So I think the NFL was just looking to get away from all of this. One of the things is we may never know all of what happened with this because there have been some non-disclosure agreements signed and confidentiality agreements in terms, so there might never be discussed. The rumored payout from what we hear could be uh, between 60 and $80 million for Colin Kaepernick. Uh, the CBA, though, still does not require Kaepernick to be signed. So that is one thing you have. One of the things when you talk about collusion, it's not that all 32 NFL franchises sent out emails and said, hey, nobody signed this guy. No, They didn't do that. All they had to prove was two or three or a couple more, depending, again, on what the arbitrator says, to prove that they were not going to sign him because of this and working together to not do that. So that's, again, something to keep in mind. So, again, people are talking, is this a win for the NFL or a win for Colin Kaepernick? I think it's more, if you had to decide a winner in all of this, I would rule in favor of Colin Kaepernick because, again, the NFL is admitting some sort of wrongdoing by paying him money, which it looks like they are. Again, we might not know ever how much they're paying him. So you have that. But again, even if it's 60 to $80 million, that's a drop in the bucket for a multi-billion dollar franchise that the NFL is. Now, again, there's even some people, though, who are criticizing Colin Kaepernick for going back on his principles because he didn't take it to the full end. Uh, he wasn't pulling a Joan of Arc or being some sort of full martyr for everybody else when it comes to this. But when you look at it, Everybody else who has kneeled or or had some other stance has a job with the NFL right now. Eric Reed, the first one to join in kneeling, has a job. He's got a new deal, too, with the Carolina Panthers. Meanwhile, Colin Kaepernick is the only one out of work. Now, again, I have talked about this as well on the podcast where he was 1-10 in, in his last stint with the 49ers as a starter. Yes, he does have a great touchdown-to-interception ratio, but... He wasn't looking as crisp and as great as he was when he guided the 49ers to the Super Bowl. So that's something, again, to consider. Again, I don't think the NFL, the owners, I I don't know how much collusion there was. I do think, again, there's some sort of wrongdoing because there wouldn't have taken this all the way to a settlement, and the arbitrator did rule that he was going to have a hearing about this, so we saw there was some sort of evidence in there to make him believe that they were going to have this, but you you look at that, Colin Kaepernick had lost his starting job originally the season when he started kneeling to Blaine Gabbert, so that is something also to consider, and again, I put most of the blame for so much of this solely on the NFL as we've talked about before, because again, the paid patriotism that the NFL has been doing, where again, up until I believe 2008, players were in the locker room for the national anthem. Now they're all out for it. You look at Tennessee and the SEC in college football, the players are in the locker rooms for the national anthem. They are not standing out there with the flag and with all of that other stuff. So that was so much of what the NFL had to do, and again, we talked about this with, yes, he has a right to protest, but again, everybody else who has a job, if I, where I work, if I just start wearing, 
you know, a, uh, a make America great again hat or an I'm with her or just start saying to every customer that comes in abortion is murder or, uh, you know, we need to abolish the Second Amendment, anything like that. I'm going to be fired immediately. My wife is a high school teacher and they're pretty much she's contractually not able to say things about politics, about religion, about so many things. She cannot discuss that with students or anything while she's on the job. So again, that is something you have to consider when you talk about this and right to work and things along those lines. So it's all just a big mesh. I am happy that this part is over with. I don't know if Colin Kaepernick wants to to be with the NFL anymore. Surely you would think, though, he would want to have some sort of playing experience if he's really that anxious to get back in, because this was the other point that I was seeing was the fact that the uh, uh, Alliance of American Football offered him a deal and said, hey, you know, you want to play some football? We've got a league here. We would be happy to have you there. Uh, But Colin Kaepernick was pricing himself out and wanted $20 million. Meanwhile, every other player in the league is only playing for $75,000 for three years. So again, that's something you have to consider when you look at that. But I was like, if you want to go and play somewhere and prove that you belong in the NFL, go to the AAF and just go bonkers and play straight fire, and then they, some team would probably offer you a deal. At least that's my thought on the matter, because, I mean, you look at some of the players who played in the, like the Canadian Football League, look at Doug Flutie, he played for a second in, in the NFL, but then he got cut, and then he went to play in the Canadian Football League, did great there, they brought him back to the NFL. Uh, you look at all the players, of course, in the USFL, Reggie White, Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Herschel Walker, all of those guys. So, Again, there are these things where you could argue and talk about, and the whole point of all this when you look at it is anybody's mind really going to change based on any of this or what I'm talking about, which is the sad thing, is that nobody is, they're already, everybody's entrenched. If, if I brought anybody over to the other side, I would love to hear your opinions on that. Um, and again, you can tweet me at Michael underscore Shibley. But again, I'm glad this is over with. And who knows, in the CBA, or I'm sorry, the non-disclosure agreement, the confidentiality agreements, maybe one of the things and terms they came to with Colin Kaepernick is he's not just going to be able to play in the NFL. We don't know. We may never know unless someone violates one of these confidentiality agreements. But again, I appreciate you guys listening to my opinions here on Modern Day Gladiators. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with Shibbles and Bits right here on Modern Day Gladiators on the Outlander Media Network. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You hear the music, you know it's time for the Shibbles and Bits segment here on the Modern Day Gladiators podcast here on the Outlander 
media network and we're going to get rolling of course the nba all-star game weekend all that fun stuff happened and it happened because all-star games are becoming at this point almost pointless i mean the reason they came around in the first place was really you were pairing a bunch of teams and stuff for a big media event that people didn't get to see because not all the players were on tv where you lived or when you go back even to baseball with the all-star game the fact that players from the National League never played players in the American League at all until you got to the World Series. Shoot, back in the day, players were barely even traded between leagues for the most part. So, it's and it hasn't been anything, because really when you look at it, Team LeBron defeated Team Giannis, uh, as in Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Greek freak, I probably mispronounced his name again, uh, but 178-164, uh, there was a 20-point comeback by Team LeBron, if that matters. No defense is played in the game. I mean, if you stand in front of somebody, even for more than two seconds, that's just frowned upon. Kevin Durant was the MVP, 31.7 rebounds. Whoop-de-doo. It's just, again, it's just not fun to watch these All-Star games anymore because nobody tries in them, really. Uh, and then, of course, you had the events that took place in the all-star skills challenge and three-point contest and the dunk contest and honestly a lot of the dunks in the actual all-star game itself were more entertaining than the dunks in the contest which of course was won by Hamadou Diallo um and of course he got his biggest one and biggest score for leaping over Shaq which is very impressive Shaq is very tall very large so the fact that he was able to do that and stick his arm all the way down into the rim, up to the elbow, a la Vince Carter, was still pretty cool, but again, so much of this is people just jumping over props, is a lot of this, which is fine, but it's not the greatest thing in the world. Honestly, the skills challenge and the three-point contest, to me, were a lot more entertaining, uh, and for once, the skills challenge really came down to uh, a half-court heave, as the Celtics' Jason Tatum uh, threw the ball in from half court. Now, again, in the skills challenge, it's a race. You got to, you know, dribble properly and do some passing and then make some shots. You got to make a shot at the end to win. Well, Tatum heaved his from half court on a breakaway and it went in, which beat uh, Atlanta's Trey Young. So that was at least interesting and entertaining. It was a lot better, I thought, than the dunk contest. And of course, the best thing for me is the three point contest. I mean, I. The dunk contest, I mean, used to be the duel between Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins or Spud Webb at 5'7", winning the 1987 dunk contest, dunking from the three free throw line. And, I mean, you got, you know, D. Brown with the pumps from back when I was a little kid. So all these things, those were great. Or Vince Carter just going crazy. Now, again, next year when Zion Williamson is up, in the NBA level, we'll see what he wants to do. Maybe he'll play against Yalo, which could be very entertaining. But again, it's just the dunks are just not as entertaining as the three-point contest. I my favorite three-point contest highlight was when Larry Bird won it one year without even taking off his warm-ups. He just drained it and walked off, dropped the mic, left, and said, "See ya, thanks. I'll take the check," which I thought was pretty damn awesome. So. You have that, but there was an upset in the three-point contest because you thought one of the Curry brothers were going to win, being that they're from Charlotte. Uh, but uh, Steph Curry, his storybook three-point contest dream ended Saturday night as he was beat by Joe Harris. He uh, 
Harris got 26 points in the final round. Curry needed all five money balls in the last rack to win. He did not. He fell short by two with 24. So you have all of that. Uh, even though Curry had the higher point total, but again, the way the rounds work, the Nets Joe Harris was your winner in the three-point contest, so congratulations to him. Hopefully, he does some good things with the check. Uh, speaking of doing some interesting things, I do like what the NBA is doing outside of everything, because most of the time, still right now, after the All-Star break, we're just waiting for the playoffs to start, but... The NBA is uh, starting to do something. They're teaming up with FIBA, the Federal International Basketball Association, or Federation International Basketball, so whatever. Whatever it is, it's the international body like FIFA is for soccer. Uh, they jointly announced with the NBA plan to launch a basketball league featuring 12 club teams across Africa, making the first time the NBA will be part of an operation in a league outside of North America, which I think is just really cool. You've got a lot of guys, of course, like Dikembe Mutombo, Manute Bowl, the late Manute Bowl. Um, they are huge figures from Africa. Joel Embiid and some of these other guys who have come over from Africa. It's going to be great. Uh, some more details. The new league, which will be called the Basketball Africa League, will be built upon existing team competitions in FIBA, which was already organizing in Africa. Play is scheduled to begin January of 2020. The NBA and FIBA are planning on conducting qualification tournaments to identify 12 teams uh, from countries including Angola, Egypt, Kenya, Morocco, Nigeria, Rwanda, Senegal, South Africa, and Tunisia. Uh, there's going to be no more than two teams from any single country. I just think, again, this is some really goodwill, and I think it's a place where you can expand and do so. It's To me, this makes a lot more sense when you talk about international spread of more American sports, where football they've been trying to get a foothold in Europe forever I mean you've had, they've had these London games for years now and it's not taking as much hold as you would say basketball on the continent of Africa I think would be a, just a better idea coming through there and I think there's be a lot more interest in that so I think that's really cool I know the NBA has been doing an Africa series for a while too where they've been playing a game I think in South Africa the last few years so that's been really cool I like the idea of this, and I think the optics are really good for the NBA. Speaking of optics, here's a bad optic, and it's in the world of golf, and we go to Matt Kuchar, who, again, has won, I think, nine tournaments overall, something like that, an all-around good guy from everybody who has spoken of him, but he fell into just some bad optics and just bad PR uh, over the last week as he won a tournament in November, the uh, Mayakoba Classic down in Mexico in November, and was paid almost $1.3 million in prize money for winning that tournament. Uh, his normal caddy couldn't make the trip. He had some prior engagements, so he used, essentially he used a local caddy to, uh, to carry his bag and, and help him out. Uh, the caddy, whose name is David Giral Ortiz, and he filled in as Kuchar's caddy. Uh, Kuchar originally it planned, to, planned to pay Ortiz, I think, $3,000 for the weekend. Uh, I think it was like $1,000. If he didn't make the cut, it was going to be $2,000. If he made the cut and bonus $3,000 for a top 10 finish, well, he won. And so he gave uh, the guy a, a, like a $2,000 bonus. But... It came to this point where, again, he won $1.3 million, and the caddy was 
it, this it just developed into this thing where the caddy was hoping to get fifty thousand dollars because when you look at how. PGA caddies work normally with their golfers. They get a percentage of the winnings. They usually get like a like a ten like a an extra bonus for finishing in a top ten in a tournament. And then caddies usually get a ten percent bonus for a win. So the optics of this were just not good. Like if if Kucher's regular caddy had been there and was there when Kucher won the tournament, he would have probably gotten something in the range of six figure bonus for being there but that didn't happen and people look at the $5,000 bonus the caddy turned down $15,000 he makes $200 a day and Kucher and them tried to spin it and a lot of people talk about yeah well this was the contract agreement he still gave him money but when you win and that's the big thing here when you win especially the amount of money that you have the contract for things like this just flies right out the window Things change, and I understand, yes, I understand agreements. Trust me, as a capitalist, I believe in following these things. But when you win like this, and I always agree that there's room for movement and things can change. Again, if Kucher had finished, say, number three, finished 10th in the tournament, sure, give the guy a little bit more, and that's great. Still much more than he makes during uh, during the week there as a caddy in Mexico. But again, the optics were just not good with this. And it, it was just something that you think his sponsors probably said something about it too when it came to, hey, just give him some money. So the Kucher is paying the full $50,000 that the caddy had requested. Uh, and also he's making a donation to charity down there in Mexico as well. So again... The optics have, were just not good for this. Yes, I understand contracts, but when you win something like it, give the guy a little bit more. And again, in Mexico, that can be some life-changing money for the guy down there as well. So again, it took a little bit, but Matt Kuchar did the right thing eventually. Took some arm twisting and some bad PR and bad optics. I think some fans were getting on him at Riviera too over the tournament this last week. So... But again, all's well that ends well. He did do it, so hats off to him for finally doing it uh, much later than he probably should have. Speaking of getting paid, we go to baseball. One of the two dominoes of the big free agent signings in baseball has finally fallen as Manny Machado finally has a team. He used to play for my beloved Orioles, then he got traded to the Dodgers, and now he's a free agent. He has now been picked up by the Padres. 10-year, $300 million contract. The biggest free agent contract in sports history. Bryce Harper of the Washington Nationals still unsigned, so we'll see where that goes. But this has been spawning a big debate in baseball, and we'll talk more about this as the season gets closer, where these free agents are not getting signed to these big deals. I think a lot of baseball organizations are looking at, especially the uh, Albert Pujols contract he signed with the Anaheim Angels where he's getting paid an absorbent amount of money and he's just not as great a player as he used to be. So these just long-term, hugely lucrative deals are becoming more rare and it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, This will be, I think, something that's really going to happen big if nothing gets talked about before in the new collective bargaining agreement when that comes up in 2021. Some players were even stupid enough to mention a strike now in 2019. The collective bargaining agreement isn't up until 2021. So just slow your roll on that. But you see, again, as a capitalist as I am, 
you see again that they're not these franchises are not required to keep paying more and more and more if they don't think these guys are going to be worth it long term the Padres will see what they do they have a great farm system too so you talk about bringing some players up maybe the Padres will finally get back to the World Series they haven't been back to the World Series since Tony Gwynn was playing for them so that's been a long time ago we'll see about more of that as things progress and we get through this season and in the next season with free agency but again it's something to look out for for baseball in the years going forward Uh, one of the great things and we'll end here with this uh, these are always great stories to hear Uh, Purdue student Aaron Lai Uh, walked 100 miles from West Lafayette, Indiana to Bloomington, Indiana for the Purdue-Indiana game. And in doing so, he raised more than $21,000 for cancer research charity for the Tyler Trent Cancer Research Endowment uh, in honor of Tyler Trent. Many of you guys remember him. He was the student who was stricken with a rare form of bone cancer, and the Purdue community rallied around him. He had been a super fan his whole life. He was in the locker room with Purdue after they beat Ohio State, which was just a great moment. He had passed away in early January, so this was just he, him, uh, Aaron Lai, going out there and help raise more money for cancer research. Uh, he left Sunday night, and he arrived on Tuesday, 40 minutes before the game. He met uh, Tyler Trent's parents, Tony and Kelly there, uh, and also good for Purdue as they won 48-46 with a tip-in with 3.2 seconds left. So all's well that ends well there on a good story as we wrap up Shivels and Are Bits. And, of course, ready? we got to break in to wrestling. And we talk about wrestling, and this one, we're going to break it down. <laughs> we'll let the music play. All this good stuff coming in. We've got new WWE Hall of Famers coming in. Oh, it's great. The music, you gotta love it. Oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> oh, yes. D Generation X is going to be the first inductee into the Hall of Fame class for the WWE of 2019. That includes everybody. Triple H, Shawn Michaels, the Road Dog, Jesse James, the Badass Billy Gunn, X-Pac, and China are going to be in as a whole group, just like the Horsemen were a few years ago. I think it's good. I mean, they were definitely one of these factions that changed wrestling, When, we, especially for me, a fan who grew up as a huge fan in the Attitude Era. DX was it. I mean, I was putting up the X signs, telling people to suck it, not exactly knowing what that meant all the time because I was a naive teenager for a long time there. So it was still really cool. I mean, they were awesome to see. And it was, of course, again, the just... Again, DX was the WWE's answer to the NWO, which are not in as a group. I do think the NWO, if you look for a historical context in professional wrestling, you'd think the NWO with Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Hulk Hogan would go in first before DX, but I guess that's not the way they're going to do things. It's the WWE. They write their own history, but it's still cool to see all of them. It is a way that they are able to get China in because China definitely, I mean, Michael Cole especially throws around every woman now in the WWE, some sort of trailblazer, including like Kelly Kelly and Dawn Marie and and uh, Tori Wilson. Yes, total trailblazers, those women were. But China was one. She set the standard. She was able to wrestle against men 
in a way that women had not really been able to do that before. It's just her time after wrestling with uh, going into adult films and some of the other things that had happened, which was just bad juju. I don't think that was a way you could really get China in on her own. But getting her into the Hall of Fame as a member of DX, I think, is a perfect way to do that because uh, she did leave a great impact on women's wrestling in the WWE in that time. So that's great. I'm excited. Love the music, as you can hear. So it's great. Just break it down. (laughs) Gotta love it. Uh, Meanwhile, the Elimination Chamber happened over the weekend. Congratulations to Bailey and Sasha. They're the new women's tag team champions winning their Elimination Chamber match. Uh, The Elimination Chamber matches were the only good things that happened on this. Uh, You can watch those and skip everything else, pretty much. I'll tell you what happened here. Daniel Bryan retains in his. Kofi Kingston had a great one-on-one at the end. He had a lot of hope spots in there. The crowd was fully behind Kofi Kingston. By the way, had a great Iron Man, or not Iron Man match, I'm sorry, a gauntlet match in the run-up to this on the SmackDown before. Because, again, he was replacing the injured Mustafa Ali. It's just been a great story of a guy who's been in the WWE for 11 years, not really been in a world title picture that much, but just an all-around great guy. Nobody's had, I think, a bad thing to say about Kofi Kingston. He's been with a New Day forever, which has been great, but... I think just having him get this one-on-one opportunity and have that shot in the Elimination Chamber. And then they've built up to it because they had a six-man tag on SmackDown and then Kofi Kingston pinned Daniel Bryan. Not only did he do it in the gauntlet match, he did it again in this match with a six-man tag this week on SmackDown. And Shane McMahon has said, hey, Daniel Bryan, you need an opponent for Fastlane. So going one-on-one for Daniel Bryan's hemp Uh, WWE Championship, it's Kofi Kingston. And I think that's awesome. We'll see. I don't think he's going to win, but it's still, you take this, these couple of weeks with Kofi Kingston, it's a great, nice moment, which we don't get all the time in the WWE because they've been screwing things up for so long, for a while now. When you talk about screwing things up, you include what happened on Raw this last week. Some of the best in NXT, and we talked about them during Halftime Heat, four of the six in NXT for that Halftime Heat segment. Tommaso Ciampa, Johnny Gargano, Aleister Black, and Ricochet all were made their Raw and SmackDown debuts this week. It was interesting because Raw was in Lafayette, Louisiana, and there wasn't a very big crowd for the Raw taping, and again... You talk about NXT, and I love it. I watch NXT. I watch the developmental stuff, and these guys are great. They're amazing. Just even if you watch Halftime Heat, you could tell they were amazing. But the storylines that all these guys have been a part of, apparently they've been thrown out the window while they're on the main roster. Is Ciampa and Gargano, who you know were the NXT Tag Team Champions as DIY, then they broke up. They've been feuding, as we've talked about plenty, on NXT TakeOver events. Now they're back together as a tag team as they beat both the Bar and the Revival. Alistair Black has done great stuff with his Black Mass kick, beating Andrade and Elias. And Ricochet has has won both of his matches as well, looking great with his 630. Uh, you know, so it is interesting. But again, with the Raw being in Lafayette, I don't know how many of those people really watch NXT. That's the tough thing about these NXT call-ups is... Especially if you do it in a town, and I'm, I'm not pooping on Lafayette, 
but it's not a big town. Like if you did, if you debuted these guys, say in Chicago or New York, or even where they had SmackDown in New Orleans, a bigger city where you've got more people who are going to go to this and are familiar with these NXT guys, they're going to get a much bigger reaction. And that's what happened when they did it on SmackDown the next night is Ciampa Gargano, uh, Aleister Black and Ricochet all got much better reactions in New Orleans than what they got in Lafayette. So that was good to see, and hopefully we'll see what happens as, you know, Tommaso Ciampa is still the NXT uh, world champion, and then Johnny Gargano is still, as of when Raw and SmackDown were on the air, they had him as the North American champion. He's got a match with the Velveteen Dream coming up uh, tonight as of this recording on NXT, so we'll see what happens there, but... It's interesting to see again, too, with the NXT TakeOver coming up before WrestleMania, what's going to happen there. But it just seems like, I don't know, it, it just seems like a waste of these guys when it comes to just their debuts. I thought they could just have a lot more buildup with that, especially because you just called up a bunch of NXT guys with Heavy, heavy Machinery, EC3, and Nikki Cross. So, you, you know, those things were just frustrating and Lacey Evans who her apparently thing she does is just walk down the ramp turn around and walk back up which is confusing but whatever as for the rest of Elimination Chamber uh, the Usos won the tag team titles from Shane and the Miz of course they have a rematch even though on the neck on Fastlane even though Shane was the one who said you know there's no immediate rematches always Finn Balor is the new Intercontinental Champion as he pinned Leo Rush because it was a handicap match with Leo Rush in there with Bobby Lashley, but Bobby Lashley was a champion, but since he pinned Leo Rush, he won the title. He's probably setting up a one-on-one uh, with Bobby Lashley for the Intercontinental Championship. To me, at this point, there's too many belts. With Bailey and Sasha Banks being women tag team champions, they've said that they're going to defend those titles against teams on Raw, teams on SmackDown, NXT, NXT UK. That's what Triple H has said. Of course, they immediately came out and having Nia Jax and Tamina be the first ones to fight for the titles probably is annoying and drives me insane, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but again, I don't know why they don't just get rid of some of these titles. Condense, get rid of, have one tag team championship for the men because then you can have them bounce around Get rid of either the U.S. or the Intercontinental title. Probably the U.S. because, again, uh, we had, at this point, you know, our truth hasn't even been on TV, I think, since winning the damn thing. So get rid of that and just have the Intercontinental title and he move around. You can have the two world titles, I guess, because at least there's storylines involving that. But everything else is just muck at this point. Even the women's titles. Yes, we've been talking about Ronda Rousey's title, which poor Ruby Riot had to get thrown to the wolves in favor of just storyline development. Uh, but then Asuka hasn't even been around since the Royal Rumble and beating Becky Lynch. Then she shows back up on TV here on SmackDown and then gets distracted and pinned by Mandy Rose. So I guess there's something for her to do, but still that was it. Oscar's one of the best wrestlers you have on the entire roster and you can't find out anything to do for her as champion. Who knows at this point, there's a lot of annoying things going on in the WWE, which of course we've talked about plenty as we are on the road to WrestleMania, but it's going to be a 
interesting and very bumpy ride getting there at this point. But of course, we'll break all that down here on Modern Day Gladiators. And that's going to wrap it up for us here on this week's show. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. And of course, head to outlandermedia.net and check out all the other great podcasts. And of course, like, subscribe, share. Give us those five-star reviews if we deserve them. I would love for you forever. But until next week, guys, I love you. Too sweet. We'll see you next time.